Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 200, recorded on August 1st, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes, and 200 episodes sure feels great. Indeed. And congratulations to you, to Joe, and to our wonderful audience out there. Really a big thank you to the audience and to everyone who maybe has been listening since Linux Action Show, to everybody who just tuned in recently. We're glad to have you aboard and to celebrate we added a new Linux Action News sticker to the JupyterGarage.com store. It was created using our MP3 album art as a template, so it just sort of feels like a, a really nice way to celebrate 200 releases of that album art. There are multiple sizes up and ready to go at JupyterGarage.com. But with that, let's do the news. Over the years, managing the use of a Linux system's block devices has become more and more complicated. There's several disk tracking methods out there, but nothing really solves the complexity. A common issue here is users end up using the same device multiple times. I mean, I know I sure do. And as it stands now, a program watching for events from a new device can't really tell whether a particular event is related to the device it just set up, or maybe it could just be an earlier instance with the same name. There isn't really a straightforward way for all the different components in a Linux system to track these devices in a consistent way, keep track of them, and not step on each other. On slow and overloaded systems, it's even worse. It can lead to a race condition if you have a box with really high latency. And block devices don't have exclusive owners in user space. So any process can set one up. And that sometimes is great. That's why you can mount a snap as a regular user and don't have to run as root. But a system-wide tracking system that kept track of which device is actually which device is clearly useful in, in many ways. And you could really see how it could be useful with something like Systemd, which could really benefit from a system-wide numbering scheme to handle events to avoid issues around device reuse and confusion around that, or even just events arriving to user space out of order. And it looks like work to address this issue might be landing in Linux 5.15. Along with that support from the Systemd team that you kind of alluded to there, Chris, the set of patches that's actually fixing, or, well, attempting to fix this whole mess, it was submitted by Microsoft. Dun, dun, dun. Their patches would add a bit of order to this whole problem by associating a new, unique, always increasing sequential number to the lifetime of each block device. Yeah, so practically speaking, when you add a new block device, like um, you plug in a USB drive, or you add a new loopback device, this new disk sequence number is incremented. It isn't stored permanently, but while your system is up, this disk sequence number list is exported via uEvents, sysfs, and there's even a new ioctal interface, meaning it will just plug right in with the existing stack. Yeah, if you're a program trying to add a new device here, once you've done that, you can immediately then query the system and find out what this new disk sequence number is. And then when you're listening for new events happening, you can actually tell just immediately by looking, oh, does the ID match or right. not? You always have that ID to go by now. Exactly. And assuming there are no last-minute design objections, this code is slated to make it in as part of a series of pending block subsystem updates queued for 5.15. There is a lot in the works there in general. And while we're chatting about 5.15, the new NTFS driver code we covered recently on the show Looks like it is ready to ship in 5.15. And I know you all just can't wait to format your home partitions in NTFS. Wait, yours isn't already NTFS? No, it's not. Well, we'll have more coverage when it lands, of course. But if you want to know more right now, we'll have a link in the show notes. 
Speaking of Microsoft, we thought it was notable that a rich and well-positioned company like the blokes out of Redmond were sounding the alarm this week about supply chain shortages that were not going away anytime soon. In reporting its Q4 2021 earnings, Microsoft disclosed that both its Surface and Windows revenues were affected negatively by those supply chain constraints. Well, they did note that remote work has continued to fuel PC demand. Microsoft and its OEM partners had problems getting enough components, things like chips, power cords, and all the other electronic parts that are required to make a new PC. And Microsoft said this week they don't expect this problem to get much better. In their latest reporting, they said that Surface revenues had fallen 20%. And year-ago comparisons, well, it's pretty bad because a year ago, that was really the height of people buying PCs for the remote work push. So it was never really going to be a rosy comparison between now and then. But Microsoft is warning Wall Street they expect things to get worse, not just for them, but really for everyone. Chief Financial Officer Amy Hood told analysts on an earnings call that Microsoft anticipated Surface revenues would continue to fall next quarter due to those very same supply chain constraints. But it's not just going to hurt for Microsoft. Other vendors in the Windows ecosystem are expected to take a hit too. Hood told analysts to expect Windows OEM revenues in Q1 2022 to decline mid to high single digits. I guess it's just not a great time to be a Windows OEM. But speaking of revenue, let's talk about Mozilla. The story of Mozilla over the last few years has been a lot about their sources of revenue and how they're going to survive. And that story hasn't always been a positive one. It seems outside of fancy ad deals, services revenue might be the only hope for an independent Mozilla in the future. So it's with that context that we've all been watching the rollout of their VPN service with some genuine interest, even if they don't make a Linux client directly available. Well, this week, Mozilla announced some additional improvements to that lifeline of theirs. Mozilla says as a result of user feedback, they've added split tunneling to their VPN. This feature allows users to divide their internet traffic by choosing which apps will connect through that VPN tunnel and which ones will just use your regular old open network. Yeah, or put another way, users can just easily choose with a little UI which apps go through the VPN and which ones don't. And along with that, Mozilla's been working on a system to suggest users turn the VPN on when they're in public Wi-Fi. A feature that maybe tech users might find nagging, but average users could really benefit from something like that. And I think this is where I see Mozilla's role here with this VPN service, and why I'm not so upset they don't make a VPN client for Linux. They're creating a service techies can recommend to normies. They're not really creating a service for me. I mean, they don't even target my platform of choice. But they are creating a service I feel comfortable recommending to Android and iOS users who just want better privacy at the coffee shop. Yeah, they really do still have that reputation, right? We trust that they'll get things right technically and that they have the right motivations and philosophy behind them. Now, if enough people can use it, maybe this thing will work. I don't know. You're right that I don't want to help anyone with their open VPN config if they're a normie. After Valve announced the deck, some of us wondered if Linux's Steam client was really up to snuff for the general public. It seems Valve might have shared those very concerns. A few days ago, they released a significant Steam beta update, and Linux absolutely gets in on the fun. Yeah, the Linux version of Steam got quite a few specific updates, including many quality-of-life improvements, along with some updates to the Linux container runtime, restored compatibility with NixOS, significant performance improvements in the library UI, and silencing some annoying preload messages you might have seen on the console. I did indeed. 
I am that guy that likes to run Steam from the console just to get all of the messages. But I think the improvements that you're really going to notice are the ones in the UI. And those are across Windows, Mac, and Linux. Uh, and what I'm most excited about is the new downloads page, which really is more minimal and focused. And it has a variety of improvements over the old design. And I think just overall, the UI looks a lot more streamlined and approachable. And I think it is really getting things more up to snuff for a new wave of users. Another story we've been following for a while is the slow transformation of Chrome OS to a workstation desktop that's attempting to appeal to technical users. Part of this effort has materialized recently in the team's attempts to make virtual desktops more discoverable. This drive to seemingly appeal to the quote-unquote developers out there has seen all kinds of engineering efforts recently invested into all desktop OSs in a way that doesn't seem like we've really seen since the hype wave for mobile kicked off so many years ago. I think in retrospect, Microsoft investing in things like WSL, that makes sense. But Google's investment in higher-end features in Chrome OS continues to surprise me. It just, it seems like it goes beyond the scope of Chrome OS, like what it was originally created for. But Google must clearly see otherwise, and this push to get everyone to use virtual desktops now seems like a really clear signal of just that. And the latest development releases of Chrome OS will now have a persistent desk bar along the top of the screen calling out your available virtual desktops. Google's calling it Bento. Now, we're looking at development builds here, so things could always change. But really what's new is the balance between simple and complex shifting further to the complex side. I mean, Chrome OS has gone from sort of subtle about this to persistently being in your face about a power user feature. It really is a bold statement saying Chrome OS is becoming a full-fledged desktop environment where you can really get some work done. And we thought this was worth passing along. It's a milestone in the efforts to port Linux to Apple's M1 architecture. Those of you hoping to run Linux on your M1 Macs will be happy to hear things are looking up. With Asahi Linux developer Alyssa Rosenzweig successfully got Debian running on a bare metal Apple M1 with a mainline kernel, no less. She built that upstream kernel with fellow Asahi Linux developer Sven Peters' IOMMU patches, which was required to get working USB support. But it seems like there's actually full frame buffer support as well, so you even got a basic X11 session available. I think you might just call that a nearly working computer. Linode.com slash LAN. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and you go there to support the show. This show is really made possible by you taking advantage of our sponsors' offers, and Linode is one that we enthusiastically endorse. You know, they started in 2003 as one of the very first companies in cloud computing, and now, 18 years later, Linode is the largest independent open cloud provider in the world, with 11 data centers serving nearly a million customers and businesses around the globe. But their mission remains unchanged. Make cloud computing simple, affordable, and accessible to all. They do that with things like their S3 compatible object storage, VLAN support, powerful DNS manager, a simple, clean interface, and much more. Recently, Linode teamed up with the Hackersploit team to release an ebook that helps you secure your Docker installation. This ebook focuses on the process from beginning to end, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. It's free, not even your emails required, just go grab it and learn. And once you get set up with Linode, if you ever run into any trouble, they've got the best 
customer support 24-7 by phone or ticket, along with hundreds of guides and tutorials to help you get started, and one-click application deployments that can just deploy the base of a Linux box or all the way up to the application stack. It's your choice. Linode's such a great way to learn, too. And Linode is investing in our community by making the Jupiter Colony reunion road trip possible with meetups in Salt Lake City and Denver and more all along the way powered by Linode. So go grab that $100, performance test your network, learn something, challenge something, and maybe deploy something in production. You just got to go check out Linode for yourself and take advantage of that offering because it's fantastic. Linode is dedicated to offering the best in virtualized cloud computing. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. So sign up today at linode.com slash LAN. Get $100 in 60-day credit, and you support the show. linode.com slash LAN. linux.ting.com. If you're sick of overpaying for cell service, go see how much you could save, and then take 25 off that. linux.ting.com. Ting is an MVNO, or a mobile virtual network operator. What that means for you is they get access to the big carrier networks, but with way better customer support and a lower cost for you. Ting Mobile gives you the same coast-to-coast -coast coverage as you would with one of the big carriers. You just get to pay less, and that's why I've been a Ting customer since 2013. Ting stayed flexible, reliable, and trust me, I change it up. And they've adapted like no other carrier could dream of. And Ting's plans are simple and straightforward. Like their new Set 12 plan, which gives you 12 gigs of data with unlimited talk and unlimited text, 35 bucks a month period. Boom, out the door, there you go. And be sure to check out Ting on Twitter. They've been doing some giveaways recently. They've got some great stuff they're featuring on their blog. They have some tips for great cell phone battery life. And maybe you might want to send that to a friend or family to give them some gentle guidance on how to get the most out of their phone because Ting's a carrier that geeks out about this stuff. And if you use two gigs or 20 gigs, or maybe a lot more, there's a perfect Ting plan for you. Every plan comes with Ting's award-winning customer service. You get nationwide LTE and 5G and fantastic customer service with no contracts ever. It's simple to switch to Ting. Pretty much any phone will work, so just head over to linux.ting.com. Check your current phone, sign up for a plan. Ting will send you a SIM card. You pop that in, you get activated in minutes. It's so straightforward. So cutting your phone bill in half has never been easier with Ting's brand new plans. But you gotta go to linux.ting.com to see it. It truly is the next generation of Ting Mobile. It's here, I can tell you I'm witnessing it. And you could save. So go to linux.ting.com. After much secrecy, this week, Google has turned on their latest undersea cable, connecting Europe and Asia. The revelation of this development made us curious just how much of our intercontinental connectivity was owned by the big tech companies. The project's budget was estimated at $400 million and includes the laying of two subsea cables. The first, named Blue, will connect Italy, France, Greece, and Israel. The second, named Rahman, will connect between Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and India. Reading through this, which we have linked in the notes, it was sort of revealing. I didn't fully appreciate how much of our undersea international cables running along the bottom of the ocean were owned by the big tech companies and the major hyperscalers out there. And it wasn't always this way. It definitely started with Google, but it's rapidly expanded from there. 
In an interview on the Data Center Knowledge Podcast, Alan Molden from Telegeography shed some light on these semi-recent developments. You know, many of these hyperscale companies or content providers, whatever you want to call them, you know, they, they've had, they have very large demands for international capacity. And so for years, they were uh, buying capacity in the market from the tr- traditional carriers, right? But at some point, they were growing so fast and becoming so large, it made sense to actually move to, the different, to a different layer and opt to invest directly in, in submarine cable systems themselves. So Google was the first one, as you mentioned, with their investment in the Unity cable, which entered service in 20, 2010. And since then, you've seen uh, them uh, invest in, in many other cables around the world. Uh, one was launched just uh, the last, this last week, the Do Not Cable from uh, France to the United States. And they are involved in many other planned cables. Uh, so besides Google, uh, you know, Facebook also is a very heavy investor in new cables. Uh, also, Amazon and Microsoft, to a smaller extent, also are investing um, directly in owning uh, submarine cables. You might be wondering just how far the private sector has gotten involved with these international links compared to governments around the world. Alan addressed that as well. So governments do play a role really in helping um, more remote communities to build cables. So if it's an island in the South, South Pacific or some remote communities in the Arctic right now, there is some government involvement there. But largely it's a private, um, it's, it's, it's private funding that is being used to build and fund submarine cables around the world. This is an extremely expensive endeavor, so it seems often what happens is the companies go in on a portion of the cable, and sometimes more or sometimes less, and along with other companies, they'll kind of buy up this cable and complete the deal, and in some cases, they'll just pay for the entire thing. How much bandwidth of the cable is allocated to those companies is basically based on the level of investment they've made into that particular cable. So in the last decade, content providers um, have invested you know, roughly about uh, $20 billion in new cables, really all over the world. And um, that's probably about you know, 20, 30 cables that they've invested in. And there's many more planned for the coming years. Um, you know, I, I think looking at you know, from what's planned to be deployed this year and the next two years, we could see another maybe $8 billion worth of, of investment from content providers coming in now. It's important. Remember, they aren't the only ones investing in new cables. So, you know, overall, there's there's going to be an even larger amount of investment coming. The content provider's share of investment, let's say for these, for you know, uh, the next couple of years, it's going to be about thirty to fifty percent of the overall total. But on certain routes, such as the Atlantic or the Pacific, there's a much higher concentration of content content provider investment. And that's really due to where they are trying to link, which is their largest data centers in Europe and Asia back to the United States. Just to give you an idea here, the capacity of these subsea cables is crazy. Earlier this year, Google broke some records with their Dunant cable, which has 12 fiber pairs, providing 250 terabits per second of capacity. Or as they put it in a blog post, enough to transmit the entire digitized library of Congress Three times every second. Okay. Wow. You know, of course, all of this is, must be happening in the background because things have gotten better, faster. You know, I, I often am on a video or voice call with somebody who's in a totally different part of the world, and you just take it all for granted now. You, you know that there was a lot of investments happening, but I didn't really connect all of the dots here that, like, Microsoft is another uh, company that's been buying up a lot of cable. Amazon, of course, or really anybody in the game 
is buying up portions of cable. And I don't know. How do you feel about that? It is a little strange to have the big hyperscalers sort of dictate where these cables land. And you just know that they're going to build this around their infrastructure. So it's going to depend on which company and where they've already built their data centers. And where they have customers. And they're going to be disincentivized to invest in areas that don't have their customers or the appropriate topology for their data center. But I suppose, in a way, because these large hyperscalers are investing in cables themselves, it leaves governments with limited budgets available to invest in areas that the hyperscalers wouldn't be interested in. So it, like, it kind of helps a limited budget spread out a little more, I suppose. Silver lining. <laughs> part of me doesn't like the idea that we privatize the internet in any way, but then another part of me has to realize, I mean, this is a massive cost. I mean, they're literally doing this with submarines out there. Think about like the coordination and engineering that must be happening in these big tech companies. It really is wild. All of the systems that these hyperscalers are bringing in-house. I mean, you think about the custom CPU development, you think about Microsoft making an operating system for their switches, and then you think, well, yeah, let's just build some undersea cables. Why not? They basically must have like their own internal telco departments that interface with other telcos because what was revealed in this interview, which we have linked, is essentially the hyperscalers just decided, well, let's stop dealing with the telcos and let's just go build it ourselves and become telcos. Uh, and that is just like a transition that happens. So it's just a wild development. But I guess the upshot is we have faster connectivity, right? <laughs> All the YouTube you could want. But really, it just makes me think, what's it like having these jobs, working with these cables under the water, actually laying them, connecting continents? And how do you get that job? Yeah, what's that job posting even look like? <laughs> I don't, I can't even really picture it. But I think all Linux admins out there probably owe a debt of gratitude to those working on those submarines doing that hard work. It's probably not a fun job. But we'll keep an eye on it and everything else going on in the world of Linux and open source. So go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact. If you've got any subsea openings to send us. And <laughs> don't forget, we have those brand new Linux Action News stickers at jupitergarage.com. And get your mimosas ready for Coder Radio's new live time at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern at jblive.tv. As for us, well, we'll be back next Monday, of course, with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us. And that's all the news for this week. <laughs>